welcome to the Alternative to Rehab podcast with your host, Dave Cooper. So in this section of the book, we're going to be talking about our relationship, particularly with ourselves. And I'm going to read from the next section, which uh, is titled Dealing with Our Success and Failure. And then I'm going to speak to that again briefly um, as to maybe expanding a little bit the idea of what this this section is talking about. So let's start with dealing with our success and failure. I swore, I quote from 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3, where Paul writes, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Fascinating. He's telling us there that judging yourself is not a good idea. And we're going to find out a little bit more now about why that is. Because if we don't really develop a non-judgmental attitude towards ourselves, we can't really work with those parts of us that we need to work with. Again, more about that later, but let's read from the book. Do you think of yourself as a success? Or do you think of yourself as a failure? Do you judge yourself? If you have an aim or a goal, you will have a sense of how well you're doing. So it makes sense to have a useful goal. The most useful goal is your own growth and development as a person. That way you will stay out of the trap of success and failure. No one put it better than the poet Rudyard Kipling in his poem, If when he said, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Now, triumph and disaster are, of course, success and failure by any other name, and he calls them both imposters. I think he's right. He suggests that we treat both the same, by which he means that we should reject them both. If you think about the product of these states, you'll probably agree that success can lead to pride while failure leads to shame. Well, that's where they're leading. So the last thing you need is to get caught up in these uh, as you cannot think clearly about your situation and how to help yourself from these states of, you know, uh, pride and shame. So being an overcomer, that's from 1 John 5 verse 5, by the way, that's a much better aim. And of course, when the Bible says you're an overcomer, that assumes that there's something to overcome, right? I hope that you can now see the trap of success and failure and maybe you know that you've been caught in it. Please try your best to avoid feeling bad about this. Rather concentrate on what you have learned today. And by the way, did you notice what I did there? Yes, I got you out of the trap. I help people to see this trap for what it is and how counterproductive it is. Similarly, you can overcome this trap for yourself. The way you get caught in the trap is through the aim you set and your efforts to succeed in that aim. So what aim you set is really important. There's another section here called the healthy alternative. Remember, at the beginning of this, I called success and failure a duality of concepts. We've just spent some time looking at how these opposites can create a trap which you can become stuck in for years. But what is the alternative? 
Well, I help my clients aim for something that is not part of a duality, but is more of a unity or a single thing, growth. I tell them that growth produces abstinence, but abstinence does not produce growth. In other words, what I'm saying by that, you know, whatever your aim is, whether it's, you know, drugs and alcohol, gambling, or just some kind of aim that you have to be a better person, well, if, you, if your aim is growth, then you will automatically achieve those other aims. But if you just go for those aims, you won't necessarily grow as a person. So you can think of this simply as a commitment to learning from everything that happens. And when I say everything, that of course includes your rock bottom, if you've had one. Remember that I asked you to be prepared to be challenged. A lot of what you will learn here will go against your common sense. Most of all, be prepared to follow what God is saying through his design, through his son and through his word. As we move away from the medical model, I'm going to introduce you to a better way of looking at things. And it's in the very heart of Jesus's ministry. Another section here entitled Learning to Value Your Unbelief. And I quote from Mark 9, verse 24, which says, The father instantly cried out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Very famous story. And what the guy in that story is telling us there is that he has belief and unbelief living in him at the same time. Which, of course, is the spirit and the flesh. One of the best examples of this different thinking is one that I see and work with often. If a client is struggling with this idea of the multifaceted self, I explain that if the imagination did not work this way, if it could not work autonomously, we would not have any poetry or architecture, mathematics or science. I sometimes ask the client, when did you become a Christian? They might say, well, when I was 20. So I remind them that any part of them that is less than 20 years of age is not a Christian. So that often helps them to understand that if they started taking drugs at 15 and only became a Christian at 21, then there is no point in calling on the drug-taking part to be a better Christian since that part of, of you is not a Christian. I know, it's a challenge, this stuff, right? But we have to work with what we find, as Jesus did with the disciples. So there's a great example of this um, in the Bible. Um, when a boy is brought to Jesus by his father because the disciples could not drive out a demon in the boy. Jesus asked the man to believe. As I'm sure he says only believe. And the man answers, Lord, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That's uh, returning, of course, to Mark 9, 24, reading from the NIV. Well, here we see belief and unbelief living together in one person, just as they do in me and in you. And here we come to another reason not to hate your parts. I want you to know that just like the man in Mark 9, all your development from now till the day you die will come from this unbelief. Yes, it will come from your parts and working with them. 
just like the disciples, you will see the transformation of yourself in recovery by winning their trust and encouraging them to become what they were intended to be. There's another section here now called My Prayer of Gratitude. And I quote from Acts 3 verse 12, which says, Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stir at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? Have you ever thought about the change in the disciples after Pentecost? Have you meditated on the clarity, the calmness and the courage they displayed once they trusted the Lord completely? Have you read in Acts how they spoke out and taught with such boldness and clarity, such as in Acts 4 verse 8 and 7 verse 2? As well as Paul, after his encounter with the Lord, later in Acts 13 verse 16. Now these are amazing transformations by anyone's estimation. But once we understand the process and the fact that it can be duplicated within us, then we can read these exploits with a new understanding and a new enthusiasm. These qualities have now been identified through digital research into the brain's activity, what we know as neuroscience. And as I said earlier, it should not surprise us that science is eventually catching up with the Bible. So the qualities that research has found to be consistently available as a resource for everyone are calm, clear, creative, curious, courageous, confident, connected and compassionate. Now, does this remind you of the disciples? once they trusted the Lord completely. These are your resources. God breathed his spirit into Adam in the Garden of Eden, and we are all descendants of his. This means that you have within you the resources that come directly from God, pure, untainted by circumstance, unchanging over time, but not always accessed in experience. I hope that the difference between this approach and other more traditional medical-based approaches is now starting to become more clear. It's not about changing and being less like yourself. It's more about making progress by accessing the thing God has already given you and understanding why you have not always been able to access it. I often use this understanding and gratitude for these resources in my prayers. This one I offer here would be typical of how I integrate these ideas into my spiritual life. And then I quote from a prayer uh, that I've included in the book. Lord, I thank you for the calmness that passes all understanding. Where there was no way, you made a way for me. You gave me courage and confidence helping me to think clearly as I face my troubles. Lead me to share your compassion as I connect more with others. Thank you for helping me be creative as I marvel at your creation. And never let me lose the wonder as I meditate on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now notice that I'm giving thanks for the same qualities I mentioned above. Pure calm, courage and confidence. Clarity, compassion and creativity, as well as curiosity and connectedness. Giving thanks for these things, being grateful for what God has already done for us, is one way of improving our state and preparing for the challenges ahead. Now, I go on in the book to uh, looking at developing relationships with your disciples. And this is when we get into the heart of the book, where we're looking at using the model that Jesus actually left us, um, which often I feel hides in plain sight, um, because discovering that we can do the same thing that Jesus did, not only externally, not only outside of ourselves with others, but internally and inside ourselves, that we have, uh, once we've asked him to be uh, living within us, once we've invited him in, we have Jesus and we also have our flesh in our parts, as it were, um, and they can be discipled in the same way. But before we do any of that, we have to develop a better relationship with ourselves. So I'll maybe speak a little bit here about um, where we, uh, where these, this relationship with yourself uh, becomes really, really important. So the first thing we touch on here is the idea of not judging yourself. And this is so important. I'd, you, you know, in a book you want to be so concise and clear. Um, but as I expand more on this now, I want you to know that it takes courage. You know, if, you, if you've been doing something like drinking too much, watching pornography, gambling, whatever it is you've been doing, or maybe you just, you know, you get too angry and whatever, or you, you get very frightened or you're very depressed or whatever's going on with you. The likelihood is, especially if it's been going on for a while and causing you suffering, the likelihood is that you're going to hate that part of you. Once even you understand that it is a part of you, quite separate from yourself, you're going to hate it and you're going to wish it was gone. You've probably prayed many times for God to remove it. You've probably... Um, attempted to get rid of it you know you've either denied it or you've fought with it or insisted that you never do it again or all of that stuff and what I'm arguing here is that in the first place this creates conflict it creates a conflict within yourself now you might say probably the first thing you'll say is well isn't that what the Bible's talking about in you know Galatians at 5.17 and so on, isn't there supposed to be a conflict? Well, this is where it's tricky to, to understand. You see, because of course I agree with the Bible. I am not saying for one second that the Bible is incorrect. Um, what I'm saying is, and I argue it in other places in the book, that we forget that this opposition, this fighting, as the Bible talks about it, is a metaphor, right? So just get hold of that idea for a second. You know, it's a metaphor, you know? And as I say, you know, when we listen to um, the parable of the, the sower, 
we don't think of ourselves as mud or soil, but that's how we're being constructed in that parable. You are the good soil. But we understand it's a metaphor, right? So this battle idea is also a metaphor. It's simply talking about two things that are naturally opposed to each other. And I think that is, um, you know, you can read this in Romans 8, where this word naturally is used. In other words, that they are simply designed that way. They're going in different directions. And so um, even though we understand it biblically to be a battle as such, there's no actual fighting going on. You know, nobody's actually being stabbed by the sword of truth, you know. So I, I think the best way to understand this is to start to think of the Old Testament as external. You know, there was a lot of very, very real things going on. There, there were battles and there were thousands of people slaughtered, you know. Um, you can read it all over the Old Testament. But the New Testament, I think, is most usefully read as internal. Jesus is talking about this all the time. He's talking about what goes on within you, whether it's the windows of the soul or not being so worried about what you eat because it passes out onto the field, but what comes out of you. This is the important thing. When he says, my kingdom is not of this world. When he says in John 17 that my prayer for them is that they should be in unity just as you are in me, Father, I shall be in them. He's talking about internal unity. So how do we work best with ourselves? Well, it's to understand that the battle is a metaphor and to understand that we can only work with ourselves well if we remove the judgment, right? If we stop hating that part and in fact do what Jesus did and start to love that part. Well, that's exactly what he did. And we're trying to be more like him, right? Right. Well, he loved those disciples, even though, as I say in uh, Romans, uh, sorry, in, um, in, Ma in Matthew 6, 11, this is, uh, where he literally calls the disciples evil to their face. But he works with them. He loves them, right? And you have to do the same thing with your internal self. So remove the judgment, get interested, become curious and start to work with yourself non-judgmentally. In other words, start to do what Jesus did. So again, really, really important idea. I know it's a huge hurdle to get over because, I mean, I know better than most, you know, having worked in treatment centres for decades and have thousands of people come to me. And I asked them about their drug-taking part, their addicted self. And they will say, oh, I hate that part. It never, it's never helped me. It's just awful. Um, I wish it would go away. I wish I could kill it. I, you know, I hate it. And, I, and I'm trying to get them to understand that is not the way forwards. Once you understand that your brain is only ever trying to help you, even though it gets it wrong, even though it's immature, even though it's naive, even though it's radical and, and doesn't understand planning for the future, it is still trying its best to help you. So we start to appreciate these parts for what they're trying to do more than looking at what they're actually doing. And of course, our idea as we develop 
this better relationship with ourselves. Our idea is to create harmony, not conflict, and to help the parts understand that you are the one to be trusted. Just as Jesus told the disciples that he was the one to be trusted. Well, Christ in you is the one that your parts are going to trust. So, the next thing we look at is the idea of success and failure. Now, this is a fairly simple idea. Um, and it's really based on the idea that often our aims are way too focused, way too sharp. You know, if someone comes and sits in my counselling room and says, I drink too much and I need to stop. I've got to stop. I'm going to get fired or I'm going to stop. My wife's going to divorce me or whatever's going to happen. Or I've got to stop gambling. I'm going to lose my house or whatever. This is way too sharp a focus, right? Remember that whatever they're doing or whatever their brain has them doing, such as drinking too much, taking drugs, gambling, pornography, whatever it is, Remember that that started out as a solution, not as a problem. Of course it brings problems. Any unhealthy strategy is going to bring a lot of problems. But it didn't start out that way. It started out as a solution to another problem. And that is the thing that we need to outgrow. And if we do, if we can broaden our aim and start to get away from success and failure, and stop thinking of ourselves that way, then we can start to grow and just as it says in Psalm 40, we can literally outgrow our problems. You know? We can, you know, that Psalm 40 basically talks about being lifted out of the miry clay and essentially that's what you need. Now you don't get out of that by simply, you know, fighting off a problem. If you stay in that miry clay, you're, you're never going to be successful as a, as a person making progress. But David says in that psalm, you, 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 you inclined your ear to me. You know, you heard me in my distress. You lifted me out of the miry clay and placed my feet upon a rock. Now that is general progress. And that is what you need. Because if you do, then that general progress will also help you to outgrow the very problem you're worried about. I know it sounds a little bit back to front, it's certainly based on traditional treatment and psychology, what the Bible calls man's wisdom. Yes, it will be back to front because, you know, the, 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 the psychological approach, the traditional approach says, let's attack this problem, you know? And traditional teaching often says, let's run away from this difficulty. You know, don't have anything to do with it. It's sinful, you know. Well, if that were true, Jesus would never have had anything to do with the disciples. God would have never had anything to do with humanity. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And Jesus had hundreds of disciples. And because of them, we're all Christians today. So, as you can see, we're building towards this biblical method, but there are certain hurdles we have to get over, you know, as what sin really is, and uh, the, you know, moving away from the medical model and how much it's affected us, 
at understanding that we're multifaceted just as the Bible describes us and, and so on. We have to get over these hurdles in order to really effectively use this approach. I talk about Mark 9.24 because it's, to me, one of the most beautiful, wonderful examples of what it's like to be a human being. You see, when, it, when the man brings the boy to Jesus, Jesus says, only believe. And, and the guy says, Lord, I do believe. That's not the problem. I do believe. But help me overcome my unbelief. You see, in a sense, of course, he misses the point. Because, you know, Jesus is saying the belief is the important bit, right? But what he's saying is that his issue in life is that he doesn't just have belief. He does have belief, but he also has unbelief. Now, this is the human condition. This is what the Bible calls the spirit and the flesh. And you've got them both. And we now translate those things as the brain and the mind. Because those are the two things we're working with. And every single person in the world who tries to grow has to deal in one way or another with those two things. Now, the last part of this is we're going to digital research and neuroscience and we're saying this fascinating thing that tens of thousands of people have been tested and it's been found that across gender, across age, across culture, across different faiths and different beliefs, we find the same eight resources. That these eight words generally cover the resources that we have and that we can access. And this to me is fascinating. It's saying that yes, the Bible is true. In Genesis, you know, Jesus, uh, God actually breathed his spirit into Adam. And so we have that. Now, something, of course, very special happens when we understand what that is and we invite Jesus into our life and something comes alive that was, in some senses, dead. Um, but everybody actually has this spirit. And so everyone has that opportunity to help that spirit come to alive. And I talk about a prayer that I use that tends to use uh, or, or mention these qualities, these resources. Um, and I would, I would encourage you to, con uh, to consider that prayer or something very similar. Thank God for the spirit that he's breathed into you. Now, um, as we prepare for these, this next part, when I'm going to be talking about developing relationships with your disciples, we're literally going to help you to work with your parts, to understand them better. Not as a psychiatrist, not as a psychologist, where we try and get to the root and the cause of everything. We're not interested in that. You know, just as in Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, you know, when he says, I, I'm straining to the future, not worrying about the past. We're not going to be dredging. We're not going to be um, doing a psychiatric job, right? Don't worry about that. It, you know, what, we're, what we often say to people in this work is, think explorer rather than detective. You're not trying to solve a crime here. What you're doing is you're exploring. You're being curious about how these parts that try so desperately to help you, how they were developed. So we'll leave that till next time. But for this time, I want to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you're getting something out of this. And until next time, be blessed.